Sometimes we assume that our flaws, our mistakes, our foibles somehow disqualify us from being used of God. And yet when we study the celebrated characters in the Bible, we come to realize that God intends to use these earthen vessels we inhabit, these clay pots, for His glory. Today on Insight for Living, you'll hear Chuck Swindoll continue a message introduced on New Year's Day. In the event you missed any portion, we'll begin with helpful highlights. It's remarkable how God uses our weaknesses, our mistakes, for His purpose. Chuck titled today's sermon, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution? been pleased to place the treasure of the gospel inside a clay pot called human being. The amazing thing of the gospel is that God has limited it to the proclamation of the human throat. The same throat that utters profanity. The same throat that belches out doubt and unbelief. The same throat that stands silent when it should speak and speaks when it ought to be quiet. The human throat. Your throat and mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about this great ministry that we've received in verse 1. He's telling us that it's like a treasure that has been hidden, and yet it is able to wipe blind eyes clear of the blindness and lift the veil of the mind and give life. And Paul says, I come not adulterating the word, but I commend it to you. And then he says in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. You want to know what it takes to be uh, an earthen vessel? Look at verses 8 and 9. It'll tell you, and I think there's not a person here that would have difficulty identifying with these. Affliction in every way not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You've been knocked down? Isn't a person hearing me at this moment that hasn't been knocked down? Emotionally beaten by the savages. The brutal times in which we live. Ever had times of affliction? Who hasn't? That's when we've grown. That's when we've done our best to learn that he was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. Well, it qualifies you to be a, to be a possessor of the treasure. You want to minister? Minister with your, with your scars, your cracks, your brokenness, your humanity. Those are the people that get into the crevices of others' lives, not the plastered saints. <laughs> God designed us to be melted and pushed into circulation. And we resist that even with the lie that says, Oh, I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm not big enough. I want to show you that what it takes is really to be little enough, honest enough. Available enough. Let me point out a few saints that were pushed into circulation. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts 
It's a good place to start. When you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8, what you would think of is the obvious, the greater light named Stephen, who has been stoned in an awful experience for people to witness. The first martyr. Standing nearby is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who holds the garments for those that stone him. And uh, if you're not careful, chapter 8 will only turn on the pivot of Saul, who's persecuting the church, another great light. That's obvious. But the obvious isn't the most significant. The most significant is the saints that are in circulation. I want to show you in this passage, in this chapter, and the one that follows, four or five unlikely things that ordinary people do in the work of missions. Let me read the first verse. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And now watch carefully. I have this underlined in my Bible. They were all scattered. Who is the all? Well, it would modify the the people of the church in Jerusalem. Those folks that made up the saints in Jerusalem, suddenly they're melted and pushed into circulation. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Don't stop reading. This is important. Except the professionals. Except the apostles. God designed through the process of persecution to push ordinary people into the known world of that day to spread the gospel. He kept the professionals at headquarters, Jerusalem. But what about the ordinary folks, those that weren't in the category of the greater lights? What did they do? Well, let me show you first. The first unlikely thing they did, they buried the dead. Verse 2, some devout men, I'm confident it would tell us that these were apostles if in fact they were, so I assume by implication that these were just ordinary saints. Maybe if the apostles had gathered to do the burial, it would have been such a high-profile act, they would have had their lives taken in this time of persecution. So oozing out of the, f- the fabric of the church came a few devout people who took care of the burial. I found an interesting um, observation. A.T. Robertson mentions, this is an old term used only here in the New Testament, translated bury, buried. It means to bring together, to collect, to join with others in carrying to bury, the whole idea of funeral arrangements were carried out. Now why is that interesting? Because that's the job for the professional. Or is it? Professionals couldn't do it because they they were hidden away in Jerusalem, so it had to be done by the lay people. That makes some officials nervous. But it's good biblical truth. My point is this. We have categorized the clergy and the laity so distinctly that when one crosses into the other's, quote, territory, he's out of bounds. 
what's so official about burying the dead? I mean, with all respect for that time of grief, the process is a very practical one. They expressed their faith to God. They declared confidence in his hand. They buried Stephen, and with dignity they covered that grave or put him in the hole in a hillside and pushed a rock in front of it as they bury in the east to this day. And they took care of it themselves. That's an unlikely thing for a layman to do. But now he's got to do it. Missionaries have to do things like that. You may be called upon to do some things that would commonly be called the official work of the church. Do it. Be my guest. If, and if that isn't enough, read the next verse. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. I want to warn you, when you begin to get involved in ministry, you suffer some of the consequences. Don't expect to be protected in your little bubble free of risk. When you hit the floor running and you're on the track called ministry, you're going to suffer some of the hurdles that will come with it. So did these people. If you think Luke is exaggerating, hold your place and go back to Paul's own words. Acts chapter 22, verse 4 and 26, verse 10. Look at 22.4. He's giving his testimony to one of the officials. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Hey, that's real. That's a real prison. That's real persecution. 26.10. Look at the next one. This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I pushed my thumb down. Don't let them live. Next verse. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And we're talking persecution. Blood, death, imprisonment, the horrors of loss. And in the middle of all of it, a very unlikely thing begins to happen. Verse 4, chapter 8. Go back and look. Those who had been scattered went about <laughs> preaching the word. How about that? You mean without seminary? Right. No ordination? No. No Greek? No, thank goodness, no Greek. Just basic stuff. Just telling them about the Savior. Just gossiping the gospel. That's all they did. I mean, you talk about a spinoff. When that rock of persecution hit the lake and the ripples began to move away from it, there was witnessing, there was evangelizing, there was the preaching of the gospel, not by the officials, but by the, the saints that were now in circulation. Believe me, believe me, folks just like you and me. Just ordinary folks. People that believe the, the book, which was then only an Old Testament form, they claimed the scrolls as true and they preached Christ. 
their life had been changed by the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they, they did the work of missions. See the words, went about, preaching the word? One authority says it's an old common verb frequently used for missionary journeys in the book of Acts. They were involved in missionary journeys. I love that. There, there was nothing official about it. They just did it. Michael Green, a British writer, in his work Evangelism in the Early Church, says this. The very fact that we are so imperfectly aware of how evangelism was carried out and by whom should make us sensitive to the possibility that the little man, the unknown, ordinary man, the man who left no literary remains was the prime agent in mission. It has always been so. The very disciples themselves were significantly laymen, devoid of formal theological or rhetorical training, Christianity was, from its inception, a lay movement. And so it continued for a remarkably long time. In a sense, the apostles inevitably became, quote, professionals. But as early as Acts 8, we find that it's not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries who took the gospel with them wherever they went. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. It must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who were not paid to say that sort of thing. Isn't that great? They weren't even paid to say it. I mean, you want to throw a person on the airplane, a curve, talk about Christ not being a preacher. Do you know the first or the early on, the first part of the conversation when I talk about Christ to someone else as I travel, do you know what the early question is? Are you a preacher? Or what's your profession? I usually say... I'm in communications <laughs> or a little counseling because if you tell them I'm a pastor listen to this sound that describes their head that closes everything off just like that you can almost hear it clunk and they were all ready to listen until they found out hey I get paid to do this you're a step ahead of me, layman. You've got it where I don't. You talk about Christ, believe me, there's a, there's a credibility, there's a believability that's right there and you've got them by the scruff of the neck. Not exactly, but you know what I mean. They can't figure it out and that's the way God designed it. That's the best kind of missionary. That's why when we get on the field and we begin to do a work, we want to bring about what's called the indigenous church. Reaching those people that are natives to that area, getting them infected with the message so that they take it to their own people. That is missions in its most successful stage. 
Not that we stay there and westernize them, but we just work ourselves out of a job. And we say, that's what we want to do over there. Well, friends, let's start it here. Let's get those contagious germs spreading around our own community. These people went about preaching the word. And in the middle of the group, there came a man named Philip. It's not St. Philip. Look at verse 5. And Philip went down. We've made Philip into a saint. He's not a saint. If you like, Phil. Phil came out of the group and he said, hey, there's a needy area over there in Samaria. And uh, I think I'll go talk to them about the Savior. And so he goes over there. He, verse 5, proclaims Christ to them. He doesn't have any liturgy, no collar, no shiny halo, no spit-shine sandals, no white robe, just plain old Phil goes into Samaria and look at what happens. The multitude with one accord were giving attention to what he said. Why? Because he wasn't a pro. See, just common garden variety Phil. Just plain old human. And they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing For there were those that had unclean spirits and they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed and there was rejoicing in the city. They were applauding that. And of all things, it came from a layman who was preaching the truth. Uh, Then another man comes along who is a bright bright light. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the story of what? Well, if you ask most Bible students, they'll tell you the conversion of Saul. That's only nine verses. This chapter takes uh, 43 verses to finish, and only the first nine have to do with Saul's conversion. The rest is the work of layman. In fact, a very particular layman does a unique, unlikely job after Saul's conversion. So let's not capitalize on the obvious. Let's look at the, what we would call the insignificant. Verse 10 of chapter 9. We've seen a layman burying the dead. We've seen a layman preaching the gospel. Let's see what else he does. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. I want to guarantee you won't read of Ananias as an apostle in the first eight uh, chapters of the book of Acts. He's a nobody. He's a citizen that lives in Damascus. He's a man just like any man hearing me at this moment. Just a person. He's a devout uh, worshiper of the Savior. He walks with God. And in his time with the Lord, God said to him one morning, um, or one day in a vision, he said, Ananias. I I don't know why I always do that. Because God always seems to speak in bass, I guess. We go, Ananias. However God spoke in those days, he just talked directly. Ananias, yeah, behold, here am I, Lord. Arise and go to the street called Straight. Now remember, Ananias has never ever read Acts chapter 9 before. He does not know what's coming. So he's listening. Yeah, okay. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man. All right, got it. A man from Tarsus. Ah. Yeah? Named Saul. Oh, no, not Saul. He's praying. 
What? He's seen a vision. And a man with your name is to come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias said, Oh, 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 Lord. They stuttered back then, just like now when they were afraid. Lord, I've heard many things about this man. How, does this sound like the standard response? Who, m -m -m me? <laughs> talk to Saul? He kills people. You don't want me to go talk to Saul? Relax, Ananias. Just listen. I mean, he's the one who does harm to the saints at Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name, and I'm one of them. I love the Lord's bottom line response, verse 15. Go! How's that? You know, it's just kind of putting it right down basic where we can get a hold of it. Get at it! What, what, how, just go! Lord, I'm not ordained. That means you're maybe going to be better at it than the guys that are. Go after it! So, he just kind of does what you do when you obey. He went. Now hang on to your socks. God says, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ah, that I understand. I'll never be useful before kings. I'll never be known before the greats. But suffering, that's my bag. I can talk to a man that's going to suffer. Men and women, uh, when God sets us to a task and calls us to it, he knows just the right vessel to fit in just the right slot. All of the vessels are clay. Okay? Some are fragile china, carefully painted. Others are just kind of earthy and rustic and worn. But he knows the Ananiases that fit the Saul's. And it's his job to match them. He, he knows who's to go where. And his problem is with the, the clay pots. Who work hard to talk him out of it. He says he's going to suffer and I want you to tell him. So what does he do? I love this approach. Verse 17. You imagine. Put yourself in his shoes. He's going to go call on this mafia. I mean, that's like having Bible study with Idi Amin to go over there and to talk to Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus about the gospel. He walks in. Verse 17. B -b 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 Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, call me here. Can't you see it? The Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you were coming. He sent me to you that you regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. I don't think Ananias could believe it. It's too good to be true. Fixed him a meal, and Saul ate, and, and he was strengthened. The third unlikely thing for the layman is to disciple and encourage a gifted individual. Who is Ananias? Nobody. You won't read him. I looked him up in the great Old Testament characters by Alexander White. Doesn't even list him. 
great New Testament characters. Couldn't find him there. He's not there. I mean, he's got how many chapters on Paul? On Paul? Six, seven, eight? None on Ananias. But it was Ananias who told him, you're going to have your sight. You're going to suffer a lot. Well, let's eat together and let's talk about what's in front of you. Ananias had a profound impact on his peers. Even in obscurity, this man inspired a generation of leaders to follow Jesus. You're listening to Insight for Living and a message from Chuck Swindoll titled, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution? This sermon represents the seventh in a series of 12 studies called Questions Christians Ask. To purchase the CDs, go online to insightworld.org. Well, we had a number of loyal listening friends contact Insight for Living before the December 31st deadline, and we're so grateful for their support. And it's not too late to make an impact today. Check. Yes, we've had people call us wondering if it's too late to make a contribution. So I'm here to say today, it is not too late. Our faithful staff has returned to the office after their well-deserved holiday break, and they're back in full swing and ready to serve each one of you. So, take a few minutes to place that call or write that letter. Perhaps go online. Let us know that you're standing with Insight for Living by making a donation toward the ministry. Thanks so much for helping us meet the need. While it's too late to qualify for a tax deduction in 2013 today, it's certainly not too late to make an impact. To respond to the need right now, go online to insight.org. Or if you're listening in the United States, call 1-800-772-8888. And as you give, be sure to request the brand new book written by Pastor Terry Boyle, the Executive Director of Insight for Living in the United Kingdom. It's called The Way of Lament, a biblical approach to God in times of pain. When we're at our lowest moments, we hardly know the words to speak to God. And yet He longs to hear from us and he can handle whatever it is we need to say. If you're listening in the United States, ask for this practical and compelling book, The Way of Lament, when you call 1-800-772-8888 or online, go to insight.org. I'm Dave Spiker, inviting you to join us again Friday to hear another message from Chuck Swindoll on Insight for Living. The preceding message, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution?, was copyrighted in 1983, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2013 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide.